friends, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about being in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we're living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance and in showing up for liberation? My name is Will Green, and this podcast is a project of Surge Faith. Surge is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people working to resist racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback and accountability from listeners of color. A little about me. I'm a United Methodist pastor who lives on land that was inhabited by Pentecost people before the Christian invasion of 1620. I'm a white cisgender gay man, pronouns he, him, his, who serves a congregation in so-called Andover, Massachusetts. In addition to my ministry in the church setting, I'm also involved in the work of prison abolition. I believe in a world without prisons. In this episode, I have a bunch of ideas to share with you about two of the readings from this week's lectionary and how they may relate to white people involved in anti-racist work. I'll share some questions and some observations about the stories. And as sometimes happens, I realize, this episode is more fodder for additional reflection as opposed to a unified whole that argues towards one firm conclusion. So I hope it inspires you to do more thinking, whether you're working on a sermon yourself or if you're reflecting on these passages on your own as part of your spiritual practice. This week in the lectionary, there are two stories about two different dances. First, a dance by David out in the streets, and then a dance done by a person in a private setting for King Herod. Uh, Let's start with David. In the reading this week from 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'm not going to read the story. In this story, David dances out in the streets in front of the Ark of the Covenant as it's brought to Jerusalem. David's dance sets a scene that is bold, demonstrative, powerful, and to at least one person, David's wife, Bacall, it is scandalous. Now, I'm going to guess that you have been out in the streets a lot lately, too. I hope we've all been out in the streets lately, protesting. Now, that list of adjectives I used to describe David's dance, that same list could be used to describe some of what has been going down in protests and marches in the streets lately, things you and I have been a part of. Bold, demonstrative, powerful, and to some people, maybe even scandalous. So, when I imagine David out in the streets these days, my mind goes to the protests, the actions out in the streets that you and I have been a part of. When you read this story or listen to someone else tell it, can you picture comparing your actions out in the streets in, the, in doing movement work and David dancing? Can you picture watching footage 
of David Dance on your phone via Periscope. I'm making this up. Can you imagine a clip of David dancing going viral or being shown on Democracy Now! Or some image of David dancing in front of the Ark joining the contemporary iconography from our movement of resistance? Can you picture it? Imagine David's dance and all the energy that animates that dance. Imagine that joining us in the streets today. Imagine David rendered on a poster created by Micah Bizant, or drawn by someone from the Just Seeds Cooperative. Maybe you can even imagine uh, David himself on Instagram, you know, taking footage of himself dancing, or asking people who appreciate his moves to pay him on Venmo or Patreon. Now, as I, as I say this, I feel a bit like the uh, dorky pastor trying to be relevant, but my point is, can you see the anti-racist movement we're involved in reflected in the energy and spirit and dance moves of this story about David? Just imagine a connection between these two worlds. You know, I'm not saying King David was anti-racist or that he was literally somehow on the left. I'm not saying everyone who reads this story has to align with me politically or that, you know, my ideas about the world are the only rational conclusion one can get from this story. Forget about that way of thinking. Instead, just feel the energy of the story and connect it with the an energy that animates you in your work. You know, sometimes it's good to just try to feel a connection and to trust a story as a story. Just trust that the stories are our stories and that they can give us energy and courage and inspiration. You know, we don't necessarily need uh, technical knowledge of ancient Hebrew or historical context about the events depicted here to relate to a biblical, a biblical story. Sometimes we just need to dance. Maybe we just need to be out in the streets participating in a significant spectacle and to experience what that feels like. That can bring us closer to these stories too and can bring these stories closer to us. There are so many ways of relating to stories. We shouldn't just study the Bible. We should also feel the Bible, feel these stories. We need to trust these stories, enjoy them, connect, relate, inhabit these stories, reimagine them. I'm certainly all for being critical or even scholarly as well at times. And I'm definitely for reading against ideologies within the text that oppress and subjugate. But there also needs to be time when we can just play with stories and lose ourselves in them. And I think that this story about David dancing gives us one of these opportunities. Hey, we're out in the streets doing stuff. Can we feel that connection? In the spirit of this, I want to uh, take you back to June 27th, 2015, the grounds of the South Carolina State House. That's the day that Bree Newsom climbed that flagpole and removed the Confederate battle flag. I had to look this up to get this right, but when she was doing that action, she said, and I remember seeing this video footage at the time, she said, and I quote, this is the quote, this is what Bree Newsom said on the flagpole. In the name of Jesus, this flag has to come down. You can come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. I come against you in the name of the Lord. This flag comes down today. 
Wow. Now, here's the thing. This middle section of what she said, when she said, quote, you can come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. I come against you in the name of God. Do you know what she's referencing with these words? Maybe this is common knowledge and everybody knows it, but I think it's worth remembering. Remember that day. I, I remember that day in hearing that quote. I don't know what you thought about that quote when you first heard it, but the first thing I said when I heard it was, she is quoting scripture. And she was in that, you come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. I come against you in the name of the God. Do you know the reference? She's quoting actually something that David says in First Samuel, the same guy we're reading about dancing this week. First Samuel, chapter 17, verse 45. 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verse 45. David said to Goliath, here's the quote, you're coming against me with sword and spear and shield, but I come against you in the name of God. That's what, that's what David said to Goliath. Now, this is what Bree Newsom said to white supremacy. You come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. I come against you in the name of God. Now, I've never seen her say this in an interview or, you know, talk to her about this myself. But I have to say, as a believer, as someone who reads the Bible and takes it very seriously and loves the Bible and is encouraged and inspired and energized by it, when I saw Bree Newsom risking her life to take that flag down, and I heard her speaking the words that I know from when David slayed the giant, I knew exactly what was going on. She was living out the story. She was showing the world the power of her faith and what it means to live the good news. You know, my strong sense is that this was not the first time she had done this. This was not a one-time thing for her. This is who she is, I think. I'm not trying to turn into her I'm not trying to turn her into some singular saint or a hero of biblical proportions. I'm just saying I feel the story of God alive in her. Now of course, you know, she's brilliant and wise and creative and critical in more ways than I can even begin to appreciate. But with that action, I think she said more about the story of David than libraries of writing ever could. Because she made it real. She was living it. She was showing it. She was doing it. She lived the energy that makes that story what it is. That's a very good way to do Bible study. Now, this is not just something that Bree Newsom can do. I think we would be we would be wise and we would be blessed to believe that such a life is possible for all people. You know, you'll never be David, you'll never be Bree Newsom. But the story of God can be alive in us. But here's the thing. It takes imagination. It takes creativity. It takes love and hope and a desire to live. Now, can you imagine speaking like David spoke to the giant? I think Brie Newsom could imagine it. Now, can you imagine dancing like David danced in the streets? Because if you can begin to imagine such things within you, then you can begin to live such things in your life. So that's where I'm I'm going with this story. Just imagine David's dance. And imagine yourself and your people living with that energy and moving with that spirit. Imagine David at the march with you. 
Imagine David involved in your direct action. Imagine David on the flagpole at the state house. And when we imagine these things, we begin to see ourselves with faith and courage and power that can even go beyond what we've ever imagined before. Okay, switching a little bit, switching focus a little bit. Let me now uh, bring us back to the, to the story and make a, another observation. In the story, uh, David's wife, McCall, was not impressed with David. She judged David. She told David she was not having it. I'm imagining McCall just accusing David of trying to show off. I'm thinking McCall thought that David was virtue, virtue signaling. Excuse me. I'm, I'm suggesting that McCall thought David was virtue signaling. Do you get it? Do you know what it's like to come back from an action or a demonstration or a march and have someone say to you, you're just faking it for the cameras and you're just looking for credit. I think this is what happened to David. Maybe this turn in the story gives us the chance to actually ask ourselves some important questions. Especially as white people, we do, we need to ask ourselves and even be confronted by other people who ask us, why, why do we go to the streets? Are we trying to center ourselves? Are we looking for fame or recognition? Do we expect praise and respect for what we do? I hope not. <laughs> uh, but even if our conscience is, is clear and we know what we're about, I still think the argument, the exchange between McCall and David can still make us ask, how do we respond to criticism from others? Or at least... If not to criticism, how do we respond to lack of support? What is it like when you come back from being in the streets? When you come back from the dance, if you will, and someone asks you, did you have a permit or some you know, stupid question that is, just misses the whole point? Or better yet, if you haven't had someone you know, try to dump cold water on you in person, like McCall did to David, you, you should know that that probably has happened behind your back. People, people will say that about you, whether you deserve it or not. Uh, so we may as well say it and think about it because it happens. It's part of the deal. Uh, we should know this going in. And I feel like this story is a chance to reflect, to think about this a little bit. And I, I have two things to say about this. This McCall moment, I'm calling it, when someone accuses you of virtue signaling or when you have to uh, get honest about what it is that you're looking for in the movement. And the first thing, very simply, is that we actually have to ask ourselves if this is true. We really do need spaces where we can process our inner feelings and do deep work on how we think of ourselves and understand what we're trying to accomplish. Are we looking for fame or respect or self-satisfaction? You know, what are we after emotionally? You need people you can talk to about this. And also at times you will be confronted, like uh, McCall did to David. This sort of reflection is important. It takes time and space and should be part of our own growth. We need to find space for ourselves to have these conversations, to do this sort of reflection, 
so that this sort of conversation doesn't happen where it is not needed. You know, there, there are some people who don't need to hear white people talking about our inner feelings of, of how we're experiencing this work. But we still need to do that work and to take space and time for it. Okay, that's the first thing I want to say about this McCall moment. Second thing, on a different note, is uh, just know that there are times when people will try to tear you down and tear you apart. You know, this is what happens in the comments section, as we say in online culture. I don't know what McCall's deal really was. You know, if she was really, it does not seem in the story, obviously, as if she was trying to help David self-reflect. But uh, we just need to know that uh, we shouldn't be brought down by people who don't get it and don't care to get it. You know, you're, you are always going to be questioned and looked down on by somebody. It doesn't matter. I remember once, I was once, uh, I was involved in, in a series of, of actions at a big conference. This was in my church, the United Methodist Church, the denomination, a big conference. And I was, I was protesting the uh, denomination's anti-LGBTQ policies. Any, uh, anyway, somebody uh, participating in the main conference, someone who was, you know, one of the targets of our protest, who we were trying to, uh, who we were trying to speak to and get a reaction from, this person who saw herself as sympathetic to to me, maybe she was, I have no idea. Uh, she found an opportunity to kind of get me alone, and she said to me, as I was involved in in all of these actions at this conference, uh, she said to me, you know. Uh, everybody thinks you're crazy and you're just trying to be disruptive, but I get what you're doing and I appreciate it. She said that to me, sort of, sort of one-on-one, one of these uh, hushed hallway, quick conversations. You know, everybody thinks you're crazy. You're just trying to be disruptive, but I really get what you're doing and I, I appreciate it. It was one of these I'm on your side sort of things. Anyways, for whatever reason, when she said this to me, I said, um, I said, I am crazy and I am just trying to be disruptive. I don't really know why I said that exactly. Um, but I think there was some spirit of David in what I said. As, as I read this lectionary text this week and David's exchange with McCall, I feel some of that defiance in David's rebuttal to McCall. You know, also, sometimes people question us. This is a very different sort of thing to say, but sometimes people question us, like McCall questioned David, because we've done something really foolish and we need to be corrected. And in these cases, we just need to take the criticism and accept it and not let our shame or our guilt block us from learning. You know, there are some actions we don't need to be at. There are some things that we do that we shouldn't have done, some events we shouldn't show up for. Sometimes uh, we need to support in other ways. And that's, that's cool. That's good. Sometimes we make huge mistakes and we just need to not make them again. And everyone isn't always going to get what we're doing. We're not always going to get it right. So I think about all of this when I think of McCall and David dancing, David dancing in the streets, then this McCall moment, you're always going to have dance critics. Uh, at the end of the story, David defends himself by saying, I was celebrating before the Lord. I hope you can celebrate before the Lord in your protesting, in your actions. And I understand that this movement is not all protesting and marches and actions, but uh, this dance metaphor makes me think of this. So sometimes our dance is powerful and joyful and energetic and inspiring, like David's dance was. 
Also, again, on a very different note, just putting this out there, sometimes our dance is very serious and somber and sober. I've been involved uh, last several months in a series of actions at the uh, Boston area ICE office called Jericho Walks. Maybe you know what a Jericho Walk is. Um, This is a a walking around the perimeter of the ICE building in silent prayer, serious, somber, sober. The new Sanctuary Coalition in New York City has a great toolkit for organizing that sort of a march. It it isn't a dance. Uh, It's a silent demonstration. You might want to try it. Uh, I have a link uh, to that toolkit in the notes so that you can uh, see if that's a that is a type of dance, if you will, that you would like to engage in. So those are, those are some of my thoughts about the first story. All sorts of different thoughts there about David's dance. Now I want to switch gears very much and go to the second dance story. Uh, this is uh, the reading from the sixth chapter of Mark, story of Herod and uh, the execution of John the Baptist. There's a lot here. And I've got some observations that I want to share with you, some more uh, questions and, and thoughts to raise. First thing, notice that when Herod heard about Jesus, his first thought was that Jesus was John the Baptist. Okay, John the Baptist was from Herod's past, and Herod knew him well. And it's interesting that Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist, because obviously Jesus is now much more famous than John the Baptist. But this reminds me of something. It reminds me of this. People always seem to have this need to make comparisons to their past that they can't get beyond. And I'm thinking about this in our movement work, as far as how we're seen, how we're received, how people think of us, there's always these comparisons to the past. Here's the obvious example. Think of how often people do this ridiculous thing when they say, so-and-so in the movement is the next Martin Luther King Jr. It's so absurd, and it's so irritating, and it's so common. Everybody wants to reach back with these comparisons. Obviously, of course, people are in particular obsessed with comparisons to Dr. King. Why not just let people be themselves? I think about this a lot, and it's sort of hilarious to me as I turn to the Gospel according to Mark and see that, oh my God, even Jesus faced this. Even when Jesus was on the scene, living his truth, being himself, somebody had to go and say, oh, Jesus can't just be Jesus. He has to be the second coming of John the Baptist. All I'm noticing here is that people always want to make these comparisons to the past. Those people are stuck in their own stuff from the past. So if someone tells you that, oh, you know, in the past, so-and-so did it this way, and if you want to be like them, you know, just let them talk, because they're working on their own stuff. You know, Herod... Herod does this. He thinks this way in this story from Mark. And then he gets lost in a flashback. You know, maybe people who make comparisons like this today are stuck in their own flashback. Mistakes they made in the past, too. So that's just an observation that I want to put out there. Uh, Even Jesus got compared to people in the movement before him. Now, 
and we move on to a different observation. Just this. Herod, Herod, even though he ordered John the Baptist to be killed, Herod actually respected John the Baptist. This is an odd little note. Mark chapter 6, verse 20. It says, Herod respected John the Baptist. Herod had his own personal feelings about John the Baptist, and they were positive. Now, I'm not trying to say that Herod was a good person or a sympathetic character, but I'm very intrigued at how Herod has this little twinge of conscience, it seems, that it seems for a brief moment in the story, there's this suggestion, there's this crack of a possibility that Herod is going to treat John the Baptist well because he finds him respectable. Guess what? It wasn't enough. It didn't work. Being respected was not enough to save John the Baptist. It wasn't enough to convert Herod. It made no difference. And maybe we should remember this when people talk about respectability politics. You knew I was going to say that, right? Maybe we should remember this when people think about, hey, if we get this powerful person to personally like us, then things will be better. This whole idea that individual conversion of high-ranking people is going to save us, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in this story from the Bible. It doesn't work in our lives. Herod respected John the Baptist. Then he had him murdered. Okay. Uh, here's here's the, the last thing I want to say about this story. David, remember, David danced and it was good as I'm reading it. I'm saying David danced and it was good. In the Mark reading, uh, there is a dance in front of Herod and it is not good. It was bad. It led to bad things. Going back to this metaphor of dance as protest, dance as direct action, dance as marching in the streets. I want to say that, that just as there are two dances in this week's lectionary readings, one of them is good and one is bad, I also want to say that just because we protest, just because we march, just because we dance or do an action, does not mean that it is always good. Sometimes we get caught up in things uh, that lead to very, very bad consequences. We need to be critical and thoughtful and reflective and wise about what our actions and marches and protests or dances, if you will, what they lead to. And uh, for this, I, I want to call your attention to an art, a recent article um, came out on just on the, the 10th of, of July, Tuesday the 10th, article by Kelly Hayes, uh, Miriam Kaba, and Monica Trinidad. It's on truthout.org. And there's a link to it in the notes. Uh, this article is an analysis of a high-profile action that took place in Chicago on July 7th. And they point out that just because it was big and it was in the media does not mean it is good. In fact, some events can actually be very harmful. And they, they talk about this in the article. The article is titled, It's Not Civil Disobedience If You Ask Permission. So read it. Uh, the article is focused around five questions. And I think, obviously, these are just great questions that we should ask ourselves when we plan or ch choose to participate in an action. And I'm just going to uh, share these questions with you that the authors come up with. The questions that they think are, are good ones to frame an action or a march are, first, what is the demand? 
Second, what power is being shifted? Third, who directly benefits and who doesn't? Fourth, who's the driving force behind the action? And finally, is the event what it purports to be? So if you haven't read the article, you know, these are just thoughtful questions uh, about uh, uh, that we can use to analyze actions and where we choose to put our energies. When it comes to being in the streets, which is this metaphor that I'm, I'm using for, uh, for dances, uh, to talk about dances from our lectionary texts. There are two dances in the lectionary this week. One is good and one is bad, to simplify a bit. How do we discern how we dance in this movement, in this anti-racist struggle? How do we decide what dances to join? What dances are right for us, particularly for us as white people? I, I think this article can help us think through such questions, lest we end up getting, well, it's a very serious note to end on, but uh, lest our dances end up getting people killed because of our own poorly chosen choreography. It is that serious. The work we are doing is work of life and death. Well, thank you for joining me. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. That's the website, showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search the word as resistance. You can interact with us there. And transcripts are available on our website. As always, the music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is called No Enemies. It's a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014. It's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. Thanks for listening. We are. We are.